Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Here we go. Oh, tonight we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. Oh, welcome back to another episode of a typical disgusting display podcast for writers by writers who hate writing. Uh, Goldie, we had a uh, we had a fun week this week. We saw each other socially. We saw each other out and about. So. First of all, I just want to say I'm like Patrick Mahomes this week. I'm hobbled. I'm sick. Yeah. So if, if you know, like I'm gutting it out. A lot of people are saying they, they can't believe I'm even out here doing Gunting it. Gunting it out. And, and, First and joke yet, of the day. First joke of the day. You finish, sir. And yet, and yet I'm, I'm here on, on a 60% throat. Attempting the podcast. All right. So yes, I saw you socially. I saw you at a dinner party and, and a couple of funny things. First, you were there first, and your look of shock when I walked through the door, and you couldn't hide it, and you said to me, you were invited to this? What? No, you, did you, you know really? Why, you know why I said that. Yeah, because you can't believe <laughs> anyone wants anything to do with me. I felt, well, that's that might be part of it subconsciously, but what? I felt that because this was a, a 50th birthday of a friend of both of ours, or, yes. uh, my John Fogarty. And he listens to the podcast. Happy birthday, folks. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. Um, but I've known <laughs> Fogarty, you know, longer than you. Yeah. And and I considered him like, uh, like I'm in his inner circle and you are not, is the way I considered it. I but well, that that's was, I was Shocker corrected. of shockers. I know, but I thought you would have said something to me in the in the. That was the other thing. Is Why wouldn't you have said something to me? Because I wasn't sure you were invited. Well, which is the whole I thing. guess I wasn't sure you were invited. Ooh, <laughs> All right. I love God this. damn it. So anyway, <laughs> do share. <laughs> already from walking in, uh, that was entertaining. Yeah. So then, um, and I, so to give a little color to to this anecdote is I've I've pointed out in the past that one of my least favorite things is when I watch a documentary like the Eagles documentary and I just watched a Harry Nilsson documentary and the documentary is about these musicians they want to show like oh 
it was crazy. They were crazy. They were partying. The girls, the drugs. And so they, they do these interviews with people, and the people are like, oh, man, it was unbelievable. You know, Harry, all the stuff he was doing a night with Harry. Like, you didn't know when you were coming back. And I'm always like, give me an example. Say one example of one thing that happened on one of these nights that was crazy. And they're just like, it was just nuts. I mean, you'd just be going all night. And the girls, it's like, what girl? What did you do with them? Name one girl. So I, I, at that point, I just go into a state of disbelief because I say, if there's anything here, you would have an actual story rather than just like a rock and roll leather pants attitude of how badass you were with nothing behind it. So cut to I hate this uh, preamble for me, but cut the way. to we're at, we're now at the dinner. We've, we've, we've gotten past Alex shock that I was invited and we're actually sitting down to the dinner. And of course, Alex puts himself in the anchor seat, you know, want, wants to be the center of attention. In this what are you party. talking about? And, he, and he's holding, just let me fit. Let how me many, finish. How many people are there? Not many, like eight or nine. Oh, inner circle. Inner circle size. Less less than 12. 12 is an embarrassing guess. Okay. So so twice within a span of 10 minutes, Alec does this. The the first is uh, we get talking about comedy and the host, uh, Heather, who's lovely and just creates a perfect evening. Always. She says, oh, she she says, um, trying to get Alec out of his shell, you know, as a hostess (laughs) will do, uh, says... Oh, tell us about some of your stand-up jokes. Do you remember any of your stand-up oh, from no. when you used to do stand-up? And your, he best, goes, your best stand-up jokes. You and he goes, oh, I, I couldn't even tell any of my stand-up here. No, wrong. <laughs> like it was so, wrong. Let, me, let, let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and, and, he, and he's going, oh, it couldn't. I mean, it's just too, you know, it's too <laughs> inappropriate and, and just nuts for you guys. So, he, you know, so okay. And so then... He's talking about this Marilyn Monroe movie you saw on Netflix. Yeah, Blonde. Blonde, okay. Yeah. And uh, people start asking, you, you start initiating a conversation like, there's stuff in this movie that, you know, it's, it's pretty gross. And, and, and I believe I say, well, like, what's one example of this? And, and he said, I couldn't even say it at this point. I couldn't even. I mean, I just, for me to, like, start talking about, let me finish. I see you leaning forward. Let me finish. You've become Trump. You've become Trump. Trump with his, with his, with his, you know, a lot of people saying about Lindsey Graham some stuff that I can't bear repeating over here. Like, when you see the truth about Obama and it would come out, I won't say it, but this is who you are now. You're, you're, you're promising on something that you never have to okay, deliver okay, under the guise of me. being a man excuse of mystery. Me. Let me finish. Excuse me, you're a dog. That is disgusting. It's deplorable. Well, first of all, I, may, may I re- respond to this now? I'm finished. Okay. I, I'm finished. She was, on, she was only 18. Um, so first of all, the, she asked her specific question was, what, what was your best stand-up joke? Truth is, I didn't have very many that I could even consider. But there was one that I knew in my mind, this one that I opened with generally worked, and I thought it was a good joke for the time, being the key phrase. And it's a joke that involves an R word that is not a fun word for anyone to hear over a dinner table. Mm. And especially because our our lovely host, uh, Heather Fogarty, is involved with a charity that deals 
with this subject. So mm. I knew in that moment, I knew what joke I wanted to tell, <laughs> but I was like, I cannot tell it. And I stand by that. Now, okay. B, Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I'm going by point by point. Okay, hang on. Okay. You're disgusting. Um, if anyone out there of our listeners has watched this Marilyn movie with got hoodwinked like I did by Ana de Armas, who's yeah. gorgeous and like, oh, I'll watch her as Marilyn yeah. Vavavoom. No, this movie had some of the most troubling scenes that I've ever witnessed in a film that I could never even conceive of. And also it, dealing with an area that is not as a as a man is not mine to be grossed out or talk about or you know I di again it was not appropriate for a polite dinner, dinner party, party conversation. So what? Okay, I'm still confused. Like, what could be possibly be so inappropriate? Okay, well I can gross. say it. On, I can say it on the podcast okay. now. So, okay. in the Maryland movie, they have a suction camera pov of an abortion oh whoa you yeah. could have said that at the dinner no i couldn't have <laughs> it was it was so and then like and the, and poor john has his cousins here like across the table who look like perfectly normal nice people and i'm not gonna put a fucking suction abortion in there over their dumplings oh. well then don't we were eating. don't bring the stuff up maybe uh, well, I, I'm not sure that I did, but I certainly got pulled out into it. Thank you very much for going over that blow by blow so of the good. dinner. Oh, the other thing is yeah. that I've noticed. So you were you were wearing a uh, a hooded sweatshirt over a and a blazer over it. Yeah, all all very nice. All very uh, the workmanship on on each impeccable. The fit great. Uh, you've got these glasses now, so so you've just <laughs> stolen Ellen DeGeneres' whole look, and we're going to act like that's not happening? I, you know, if I ask people to dance in the middle of the dinner, then so be it. I did I did uh, insist no eye contact from anyone at the other end of the table. And as for, as for me anchoring the table, we were sitting in the exact same seats, asshole. I was sitting across from you. So whatever anchor I had, you had as well. Okay. Uh, but it was a really lovely dinner. And we did get to talking about uh, a few things. And one of them I just wanted to mention briefly here because I was so kind of blown away by this. I watched a documentary on Netflix called This Changes Everything. And it's about the underrepresentation of women in Hollywood um, as told through uh, the eyes of, of older women directors who never really got a fair shake, different actresses who have had obviously, you know, many issues with the way they were portrayed or the, their lack of opportunities, but it really sort of focused in on the directors and the numbers over the years uh, for for women directors are appalling. You know, they're so low. It, we're talking like below 2% of, wow. you know, films are directed by women in the, in the times that they studied, which was up until very recently. And the whole documentary was spearheaded by the actress Gina Davis. Um, she funded some big study that discovered all of these statistics and it was very compelling. And the the final shot of the documentary is Gina Davis as a talking head. And she has this quote at the end. She says, you know what we found out through our studies? Turns out what's good for women is good for everyone. And I shit you not, the screen goes to black, directed by Tom Donahue. 
<laughs> How the fuck? I, I felt like I had been punked. Whoa. Like, that was, they missed a layup. Wow. Like, and I'm, I'm not here to say, like, oh, it's easy to direct a documentary. But guess what? It is. It's way easier to direct a documentary than a real movie because you don't have to write a script. You don't have, nobody's acting. Like, it's just <laughs> editing. So you're telling me that you didn't understand the optics of putting wow. someone, granted, a caveman Neanderthal like me, through a documentary where you've won me over. You know, you've, yeah. you've presented compelling evidence for an hour and a half. And then to end it like that was insane. Yeah. So that was it's something like I could line. talk about at the dinner party in class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that seems like a good moment to roll right in to Johnny Jokes. From Hollywood, here's two more guys doing jokes. Game Johnny. <laughs> Oh boy! Uh, once again, I have a uh, several word sandwiches this week, and I will read the wrong ones. Here we go. Let's start with this. Uh, maybe you heard this story. Former Malcolm in the Middle star Frankie Muniz has joined NASCAR as a professional race car driver. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's all part of Fox's push for the new series Malcolm in the Windshield. <laughs> Malcolm in the Windshield. <laughs> Oh, boy. Here's one I wrote this morning that I'm sure will not be great. Uh, You're not going to believe this story, folks. This is true. Uh, Progressive archaeologists are pushing to lose the word mummy, saying it's disrespectful to the ancient human remains and evokes images from Hollywood horror films. This is true. Uh, Now, conservative archaeologists are pushing back, saying woke mummies will create the exact problem their colleagues are attempting to avoid. (laughs) Woke mummies. I'm thoroughly confused. (laughs) I knew it. I wrote that at five this morning. (laughs) Because if you have a woke mummy, then that's the mummy from the Hollywood horror films. All right. Uh, 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 Play on the word woke that uh, is as dead as that mummy. (laughs) Uh, Maybe you heard this one moving on briskly. (laughs) Comedian Adam Sandler is set to win this year's Mark Twain Award. Uh, Twain, of course, was famous for quips like, nothing so needs reforming as other people's habits. Uh, Sandler is, of course, famous for quips like, now give me some candy. (laughs) Mark Twain winner. Performance. Uh, Here we go. There we go. Uh, it is a sad story here. A, a woman in Kentucky has died after gusting winds caused a Denny's sign to fall on her parked car. Witnesses say they were alerted to the tragedy when they heard a grand slam. <laughs> uh, paramedics on the scene declared her life over easy. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. And no, finally, finally. Legendary singer David Crosby has died at the age of 81. He gone! Yeah, we, he deserves a he gone, I think. Uh, surviving band members Stephen Stills and Graham Nash will continue performing, saying that's what Crosby would want them to do 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 Well, uh, this week, even more classified documents were found in President Biden's Delaware home. 
and a special prosecutor must now determine what did the president forget and when did he forget it? (laughs) (laughs) Good turn of phrase. Okay. (laughs) Yesterday, Pizza Hut broke the record for world's largest pizza, making a 14,000-square-foot pie. Uh, The pizza was sliced up and donated to charities who threw it away. (laughs) Arizona. State. Arizona announced it's going to spend $30 million researching psychedelic mushrooms. And California announced it's going to make $30 million dealing to Arizona. Ah, yes. <laughs> okay. The chatbot, ChatGPT, can now pass the Wharton School MBA exam, the medical licensing exam for doctors, and even the famously difficult legal bar. Yeah. Uh, the development has experts worried it could soon replace all Jewish sons. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a, a norm. I got yeah. a norm. Closing with a norm. Right. Closing with a norm. Yeah. Take a sip. Well, <clears throat> the price of a dozen eggs is up 60% in the last month due to shortages. And politicians are pressuring farmers to increase production. Meanwhile, roosters everywhere are saying, if you want more eggs, you fucker. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Uh, Wow, who'd have thought you'd roast a chicken? Oh, are you guys finding it easier to write them because you write them every week? (laughs) I can already say the answer without hearing even half the question. After the word easier, no. Nope. Not at all. (laughs) Equally as time-consuming and annoying. And now Uh, we're back to zero. Yeah. (laughs) Back to zero, exactly. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay. Well, folks, we are in for a treat today. Um, Our guest... Uh, is a very talented writer and comedian. She's written on Roseanne, Modern Family, and Abbott Elementary, which is all anyone's talking about. Uh, She's also had her own Netflix special called The Irish Goodbye. Will you please welcome our friend, Morgan Murphy. Morgan, so glad to have you here today. (laughs) Don't say anything. That would be terrible. I said hello. Did I not say hello? (laughs) All right. (laughs) She nice. just Irish goodbye to the podcast. <laughs> it was a very quiet hello. <laughs> a quiet hello. That's that's a good title for the next uh, comedy special. So 
let's just get it out of the way up front. Abbott Elementary, what's it like to be on a show that everyone loves? We would not know what that's like. <laughs> um, I didn't know what it was like. It's, no, I, it, I, it's great. It's been great. It's been um, very refreshing. But I think that the, I mean, full disclosure, like I'm there, you know, I'm not full time there. So right. I sometimes it feels a little bit like, not that I, I always feel like I need to tell people like, I'm not there full time. I don't know what that right. means. Like, I don't want to take credit for, but um, I, yeah, the minute I, when I saw the pilot, I was like, I mean, I messaged my manager. I said, this is getting a second. Like I, I, there was no doubt in my mind. I, I was always like a big fan of Quintas. Like I was like, oh, this is like a young perk to me, a young person who's like the real deal. And I was always kind of like uh, invested in, in her, in her stuff. But I, when I saw the pilot, it, it just, it was inevitable to me that it was going, I thought this is, you'd have to work hard to right. mess this up. Right. Like this world yeah. that, that she built and the kind of the, the blueprint for like just making something really good and fun every week. So it's thrilling, but right. it's also not like incredibly surprising to me just because when I saw the pilot, I was like, oh, this is special. So that's great. Um, it's I think what's cool is that it makes a lot of people really happy. And that's cool. that's been wonderful to see. Like Yeah, that's something new and different. Much. When when you say Quinta, you mean Quinta Brunson, right? Just for our listeners who yes, don't know. Yeah, yeah. And who, who, uh, who, who, who created it and stars in it, yeah. Right. And so now because Goldie and I, I think, or certainly I'm used to a certain kind of writer's room that looks predominantly white, predominantly male that we've been in over the years. So Speak give us for a... yourself. All right. Okay. So I said, that's why I said, yeah, particularly... don't tether me to you. On this. Uh, all right. You're, it's too late. You're tethered, buddy. <laughs> Just live with it. Um, so tell us a little bit about what, like, what does the Abbott Elementary writer's room look like in terms of like diversity and... Oh, I mean, it's, it, I gotta say, like, it's a, it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely a diverse room. We have, uh, we, you guys are represented. We do have, uh, <laughs> yes. white men, like straight white men. Thank God. Um, but Quinta's the, you know, it, what's kind of cool is hard to explain, but like, you guys know, there's certainly people who've gotten like their first show where they need a little more guidance of like, this is how you make a show. This is how you tell a story. This is very top-down Quinta as far as like, you know, vision and direction and voice and stuff. So so I, I really have to give her more of the the credit than maybe even usual for like a, a showrunner. Right. Um and uh, and then we have like a very cool group of writers. Um a couple well Quinta and uh Brittany Nichols wrote on um Black Lady Sketch Show. It, it was a couple of writers that were Quinta's old friends from um like Philly and stuff who came Good. on board. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a cool room. And I it's one of the first rooms of like a major show where I've been a little on the older side. <laughs> so when you come in two days a week and tell them to throw everything out, how is that received? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, no, it's it's cool. And then um, uh, Justin Halpern and Patrick uh, Schumacher. They, they, I mean, they produced it under their fun. They run the sh they they run the room and run the show. Um, and Justin Quint Halpern is one of our great bald writers. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> He's, uh, yeah, representing. We have we have bald representation in the room. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> And then Quinta's going back and forth between set and room, basically. Okay. 
All right. Yeah. And now I would imagine Quinta in the next five years is going to be given like 20 projects that will probably take her in 18 different directions. But so how, how many writers yeah. are, how many writers are in that room? I'd like do the math in my head. Um, nine, something like that. Wow. Okay. So that's a small streamlined staff. That's, that's yeah. very cool. Um, especially for a show that's like yeah. thriving right out of the gate like that. Um, now yeah, we have the same staff from first season and then um, added a writer named Ava Coleman, who coincidentally, the principal on the show's name is Ava Coleman, who Janelle James plays. Wow. And now we have a writer what? named Ava Coleman. Um, and she uh, came off of Girls 5 Eva. She's great. So that was the one one ad from last year. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah. And now you, you mentioned uh, earlier when, when talking about this, this is one of the first times in a writer's room where you felt like you're on the older side of the yeah. room. And and you are uh, significantly younger than Goldie and I. And you started writing when you were very young. Like, what was your first job writing and how old were you? Um, well, I worked on a I worked on a pilot when I was in college, which was like my first job. Wow. Because, uh, cool. but that was very, I don't want to say random, but I was doing stand-up at the time. Um, Scott Ackerman and, and BJ Porter, who were coming off of Mr. Show, they had a, a, a sketch show at Showtime and they hired myself and Dan Mintz and BJ Novak were sort of the young, the youngsters. Good choices. Um, yeah. They hired us to write on that. And that, and I was, again, I was in college going to open mics and then bars and clubs and stuff, but um Got out of college, waitress, uh, cried a lot, lived in a (laughs) little room behind a guy's house with like a hot plate. Um, And then um, very, very quickly, you know, again, very lucky, um, I got, I submitted to Crank Anchors and got that. And that was- Wait a second, because I met you, you were an intern at Conan, you were in New York, so- I was an intern at Conan when I was like 18. Ah. Uh, And I started doing stand-up right around then got it uh got cool. crank anchors yeah at 21 and got jimmy kimmel live at 22 so that wow. was the kind of start of it fantastic yeah. fantastic now you you mentioned it uh kimmel and i know you've worked also for fallon i believe like when they were starting up and you've written on all these um different sitcoms so do you prefer one style of writing to the other because we've been on both as well we know the differences in the things that you have to do during your day on a late night show versus on a sitcom do you prefer one to the other do you think your mind works better for one uh than the other i think i i I like right now i like like sitcoms but at the time writing on a late night show was i can't couldn't even have imagined there was more beyond that i was like that is that i also like came up on conan and i came up on like that being kind of i don't want to say the gold standard because i think in hindsight maybe that's not true i did like sitcoms i just didn't understand i didn't have access to like this is what you go in and you write it and this is how you do that thing and i think when i did the internship at conan that was like oh people do write these this is there is a process here and also it's doable and like you can do it if you're a person like you can (laughs) something you like. And so I think I needed to be sort of shown that sitcom writing seemed also kind of like a dream, but I didn't understand how you did it. So at the time I couldn't believe that that was my life. Like that was, 
that was all I thought I ever wanted, you know, was I understood people write Saturday Night Live, people write late night shows, and then I got to do it. Amazing. Uh, yeah, Kimmel it was notoriously back then, like, I mean, people always used to say, oh, Kilborn's it's fratty, which if you knew Craig, that's like a joke that right. he would yeah. even lower himself and condescend <laughs> to be in someone's fraternity. <laughs> right. It's hilarious. But I I heard that, that Kimmel was, because it was so much of his family and stuff, like very pranky and kind of, yeah. you know, like, you know, the atmosphere was super competitive. I mean, did you have difficulty adjusting to that or... I, I think, you know, when you say like family, that's the like, that's kind of the key word and maybe the difference between the, that familiarity made it more, it was more pranky in the sense of like what people would consider today, like, you know, TikTok pranks with like a family, like at a house, you know what I mean? It was just right. more, a little Light. more like, you know, cousin Sal doing bits and like, yes, yeah, certainly a little bit more like guy energy, but not I don't think in the product and it wasn't again, like the family part was again, was so cool to me because I was like basically a kid in LA and I didn't have family here. And suddenly Jimmy's mom and dad are like, yeah. seem to care about me and wow. Jimmy's uncle's there. And, Jimmy's <laughs> and I also think that there's accountability that comes with having family around like, oh, you're sitting right next to somebody who like knows your kids very well because they are related to them. So right. um, everyone yeah. was cool. I, I got very, very lucky. Like, I, I think it wasn't until the last like five years I realized how lucky I got being a like a young lady in these rooms and stuff where like, if anything, I was really like, it was almost like I had surrogate parenting and and chaperoning and you know people seem to care about how i was in my life and you know it was it was uh maybe i was looking for that so that's what i saw like i was like yeah. oh my god like i get to work with 18 dads or whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell but, you uh, i've never been in a room where anyone cared about my life so uh, I, think, I think you are a little lucky oh no i was i was very very lucky i was very lucky yeah that's funny now so you, and then you went on to to work on fallon uh, a few years later did you notice, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you noticed differences working one place and the other. Um, wh what kinds of differences were there? I mean, you were working on Fallon at a really kind of controversial moment in late night because the Conan J stuff had just happened. So what, what was that like being there at that time? Was, by the way, side note, I did a pilot as like an actor when that right before all that happened. And it was a drama on NBC. And they were like, oh, we're not picking it up. We're giving Leno all the 10, 10 p.m. spot. It was like right. drama spots were like, uh, but uh, yeah, I accidentally, uh, they made a mistake and, and cast me in, this, in, in a Dick Wolf drama. And I was like, oh, oh is that going to be my life? But then I took talent and um, I, was, I just would have been the lady going like, here's the evidence, you know. Uh, Awesome. Yeah, the, the forensic pathologist. Yeah, absolutely. yeah I, would, I love that. I ran thing. evidence lockup. <laughs> what? Uh, That's awesome. And I, I had my, 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 my one big scene was with Brian Cox, and I was like, oh, this is, I'm not supposed to be here. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I took Fallon because it was new. Like, I, I didn't really want to write on another late night show. As you guys know, there's like a lot of, you hit your, you know, your third like national hot dog day, and you're like, oh my God, I don't have any more national <laughs> hot dog days. It's like, uh, <laughs> But it was new. And so that was what excited me was like the idea that it wasn't like yet kind of paint by numbers. And I, so I heard 
So a lot of talented people yeah. went through there at that time, like Anthony Jeselnik, Ali Waller. I mean, there, there's yeah. like a, a yeah. whole list. Yeah, and Bashir it, it, but, and Diallo, Bashir Salahuddin and Diallo Riddle, who um, who do Sherman Showcase and Southside. And yeah, there's a lot of really cool. So, but I heard that the people on that joke had to write like 80 to 100 monologue jokes a day, which is, I mean, I've never had to hand in more than like 25. Like that is ridiculous. Is that true? And if so, <laughs> how? <laughs> I mean, look, I, this is not to say anything about me other than I didn't want to do that much. I didn't do that that much. I whittled them down, tried to submit quality. That was a, it was a crazy time because I also started kind of doing some more sketch stuff on the show, then moved over to monologue and was doing stand up. So I would go do stand up and it was, that was the most intense schedule I think I've ever had because I would go sometimes like at the comedy cellar, I would get a spot at like one in the morning. So I'd go home, go to bed, get up, go do stand up, come home, go to bed, get up at like, you know, six 30 or whatever I had to, to, to get my jokes in. But is that part that, of why you took the job to be a New York stand up too simultaneously? Um, I did want change. Like I certainly wanted change. I had a, you know, it was like, there was a bunch of stuff going on. I think it was, it was, um, you know, I don't know how personal you guys get, but and oh, I, I want to get, but there was a lot of like, what am I doing? Like I did, I got to write for late night TV and you're 20. There was like an existential mid twenties. That was my dream. I, I don't know what else there is. Right. Now what? Um, how come that didn't solve all my problems? You know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. there were many reasons to go to New York. Um, my feelings were hurt over a boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all the, you know, all the stuff that I thought that'll be cool. cool yeah, the, the arrest warrant. The arrest warrant. Yeah. <laughs> but so now to talk a little bit about, because it, it, to me, it's so interesting, you know, Goldie and I came out of late night as you did. And, and so we're still kind of, I think, fascinated by, you know, the people who come and go in those slots. And with Kimmel, he's really had this very interesting and satisfying arc as a, as a late night talk show host where he came out when he first started, it felt like he was in danger of being canceled. And he was sort of carrying around this label of like this guy from the man show and like what it you but he's really arced into someone who's like a respected late night, a true respected and beloved late night host. I certainly have gone on that arc with him. Whereas Fallon came out and he was like, you know, Mr. Characters, I got jokes. People already love me. What did you notice a difference when you were writing for someone like Kimmel who has his own character and someone like Fallon who has all these great expectations around him. Is there a difference in writing for the two? Um, yes, but like that's, that gets down to like what I love the most about this work, which is like, this is just a new puzzle, you know? And this is yeah. like, how do you use uh, kind of that muscle to to figure out what this puzzle is? And like with Kimmel, it was, there was a lot less of my own interpretation. Like I, I also came into the show it existed had just started but it did exist and jimmy was you know jimmy came from radio so jimmy was right. was like you know day in Kimmel. day out taking in kind of pitches and it was it was a lot more of a constant sort of flow of of information um and his jokes were i would say it, it, the similar through line is that neither of them were like deeply traditional 
set up punchline tellers um, as far as that kind of comedy goes. If you think of like traditional late night TV, um, neither of them were traditional comedians doing set up punchlines. So Jimmy was a lot more, um, you were almost throwing away the punchline, a lot more uh, conversational kind of funny nods to things. And then, or Jimmy Kimmel, pardon me. And Fallon, it was a little bit more of like a ha, finding it, like finding what is the monologue and then what, what's a comfortable place for it. And because he's so good at the act outs and the characters and stuff, right. um, I think we found that kind of, well, what if we incorporate that more into the writing? So I think like, you know, obviously Leno or somebody would be like set a punchline, whereas right. Fallon would be like, a little bit more of the the stand-up jokes of like, what if that were to happen? And then he acts out it happening. Um, right. Well, it's it, interesting. It, and, not, and, not to get too like boring into the math. No, I love we it. love this. No, we love this. Well, it's interesting. And this is, this is me talking, not you. So yeah. you can distance yourself as far as you want. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but I feel like their trajectories have been directly opposite in that Kimmel got on and he was talking about personal stuff and everyone the prevailing opinion was like, well, who cares about your family? And he'd get emotional at these weird times. It didn't seem to work. And as we've gone on, he's become more and more esteemed for opening up and being more of a person and sharing more of himself. Whereas Fallon got, was shot out of a cannon and it was mm -hmm. like, look at how talented this guy is. But we've never really gotten to know him. And I feel like he's just kind of like waned in our esteem for him as People have become familiar with like, okay, you're dancing with Justin Timberlake. You're, you're not weighty enough to hold our attention. And now we live in more serious times and we don't want to see this kind of like frivolous camp sketch. And I, I do wonder sort of like, you know, in terms of legacy, I, I feel like Kimmel has just by sticking to his guns far exceeded where Fallon went. Again, my personal opinion. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think that like, uh, well, one, I think the word we does uh, a little bit of extra work in that because like who I, I do think that that it's subjective. Me. <laughs> I got to say, like, what was so cool about Fallon was at that time, too, we did like weird mini series, like mini, you know, what if the sixth floor was a vampire, like a vampire stage or like what, like parodies of existing shows that were shot so beautifully by Michael Blyden, who is a great director and a lot of weird slow jam the news and kind of like, there was so much opportunity to think outside the box. And I think if you like performing, then Fallon, it, like if you like like a, a song and dance, you know, then that's the show. I think what Kimmel's done is something you you can't do fast. Right. To to me, like that's almost where you get into the radio element of like why, you know, for me, I like putting on Howard Stern in the morning because you go, oh, that's years. I know everyone he's talking about. I have comfort and familiarity with like the people he's talking about. Of course, week one of hearing about Uncle Frank and Aunt Chippy and mom and dad and, and, you know, people who have since passed even like it's, of course, that's not going to be as of an immediate boom as, you know, a guy who does impressions and can sing. And, you know, that's, it's just, to me, it's totally different 
you know, I, I don't even know if it's so much as one's gone down and one's gone up as it's like one's gone up. Like right. the familiarity of Kimmel is you're just going to get more comfortable. And like, I, I don't know, there's a feeling that you can't create fast that now you can have with him and his world. Yes, that's very well said. Yeah. And with Jimmy, with Fallon, it just was very, it, it, I got to say, like, as much as I think people get knocked for like, not being cool or not being like intellectual or not getting into the stuff. Like I, I would rather somebody entertain me and, and just be who they are and do what they do than try inorganically to put themselves into every position in exactly the right way, like, and to address every subject in exactly the right way, because yeah. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, that's true. And it, I mean, I guess the the sort of counterpoint to that would kind of be like, it's perhaps Fallon doesn't even know who he is and he's lost in like his thousand characters that he comes out and does nightly, but he does, he does them all so well and he's so goddamn likable. You know, it's like, you can't apologize for being like beloved. So um, ultimately that job is you, you can't address every step of that job in a totally honest way. Cause otherwise you just, every nine out of 10 people, you'd be like, I'm not, I'm not into this person. I don't know who this person is. This movie wasn't that great. This isn't that great. Like, so to me, like I would be bad at that job. I would make people sad. Uh, (laughs) You know, so I think that there's, there's something to be said about, I personally like feel bad that, you know, what, what do you expect of people? And now in a day where in a day and age where I think criticism is like so freely thrown around and it gets really uh, personal and it gets to the point of mischaracterizing people. Like to what end do you do that when someone's like throwing a ball or doing a dance or, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, these are our leaders. I I can answer that question. I expect (laughs) relentless excellence for my end. (laughs) (laughs) A relentless excellence. The secretariat of comedy over here. Love that. Um, Well, now let's, let's go back a little bit because you mentioned earlier that you were doing stand up uh, while you were at Loyola uh, out here, but you grew up in Portland. Is Mm -hmm. that right? And, and, First of all, that I sounds grew, yeah. that, that sounds so cool to me. But maybe you can debunk that. <laughs> I didn't. I grew up in the valley. Oh, Technically, oh. I, I lived. I was born in Portland, and I graduated from high school in Portland. And in between that, I was I was bouncing around. Okay. All right. So uh, Wikipedia incomplete. You might want to update <laughs> that. But uh, so, did you start doing stand up before college, or was it something that you started in college? Like, I, I'm trying to get at like we we grew up in Boston, and I think it, yeah. it was cold and rainy all the time. And I picture Portland as kind of similar, and I feel like that informs your comedy a little bit. I mean, uh, yeah. I, even though Wikipedia not accurate, and that's that's you know you 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 painted your whole picture of me based on uh, <laughs> yes, I did. Based on that, I so did. I feel bad. Now. I tend to do that. Um, I tend to do that. Yeah, I would say. I mean, if it helps you, my home life was the equivalent of Portland, <laughs> what you would imagine. <laughs> right. Um, you know, Gloomy, uh, rainy. I, I yes. Yes. Uh, my mom rained a lot. Uh, no. <laughs> oh, I, yes. I grew mine up does as in, well. I grew up in, in kind of like Studio City. Like I was born in Portland, moved down to L.A. when I was uh, a little, little, little kid and then moved around all through high school, went back to Portland for my last year of high school. And that's where I graduated. And I didn't start doing stand up till college. But like when I was in Portland, for example, I I started getting more into like, I think this is like something I like to 
do comedy, writing, jokes. Again, it found its shape sort of slowly because I it wasn't like there was a video of here's how to write for like, you know, it yeah. was a very different time. But I I do recall like I would go to Powell's books and Powell's books in Portland, my senior year of high school, I'd go there after school and they had like an old humor section, which is like one of the only bookstores I've seen that has one. And I got really into reading like books of joke books from like the twenties and the sixties and the like different eras, joke books. It was like, you know, there's a decade of joke books that are just limericks uh, or like right. boners, you know, and right. you know, singers, like, yeah. And, uh, so I do that kind of stuff. And that was clearly my brain was like grabbing yeah. for things, you know, um, like anyone were vaguely funny if they had like a memoir, you know, like somebody who was like, like, I remember reading Cameron Mannheim's book and going like, this is what I wanted. Like, I know it was just like a person who I thought was like interesting on TV. Wow. Uh, those were moments that went, that excited me. And so I grabbed it at stuff um, in that world, whatever my access to that world was at that time, did a little like sketch comedy in high school. I had played sports all through high school. My senior year was the first year that I diverted. I went instead of playing basketball, I did like a play. And then suddenly I was like, no, I think I want to, you know, dress up and do accents or something, which of course (laughs) that was never what I would ultimately do. And it wasn't even what I was good at. But I think if you go, I want to do comedy, I like comedy. And then you turn on SNL and you have like, you know, you're watching Will Ferrell and and Anna Gasteyer and, and, and Sherry O'Terry you just go, well, that's comedy. And then you're right. walking around doing impressions. And then, you, and then you don't know later, like, like, oh, I'm very bad at that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to do that. That's not what I want to do. I know I like comedy. Right. Um, it was a mixed bag of of experimenting, I think, and, and learning and reading. And thank goodness doing none of it on the internet um, mm-hmm. or anything like that, which is like my state, my... I will occasionally put on a young person's video and just go like, I, this is so awful. And I would be this person right, <laughs> right now, like in my room being Hello. like, I'm 50, I'm fit, just doing like Molly <laughs> Shannon. And like, <laughs> well, I think it's so funny that you bring that up because I, I know Goldie and I have, have had similar experiences, almost the same thing that you're talking about. Just you first start being interested in comedy, you're watching SNL, you start at, for me, it was impersonating like Fernando, you know, Billy Crystal or, or yeah. the church lady. And, yeah. and then you kind of realize like, all right, I have a face made for radio. I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> you know, it, 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 I feel like there's, there's a miniature crushed dream at the beginning of every comedy writers. I'm, I'm still in major denial. I still think <laughs> I'm going to be plucked out of you the room be. and someone will go, yes, you're a star. <laughs> I but I think I, I think like you do voices and sass, Alec. You, you do like your mouth performs. <laughs> <laughs> wow, uh, let's yeah. u- let's use that quote. Let's use uh, that. <laughs> no, but I mean like I mean like Goldie obvi- obviously too. But I just mean in, in more of like a like I don't I'm not funny in any way that involves characters, uh, impersonations. Um, some people think I do character like on stage in my standing, but it's just, that's like completely organically built from just being terrified on stage. <laughs> so I just, I barely went from barely moving to barely sort of like 
you know, uh, I had no change in my voice. Like now I'm a little bit looser, but. Well, I'm going to throw a challenge flag. I'm throwing a challenge flag on all of that because you've worked more than both of us combined and uh, you've had a Netflix special. So clearly there's a performative aspect to what you do that you're quite good at. So stop running yourself down, Morgan. This is part of the problem. Yeah, but I, I put out one special 10 years into comedy. It's been 10 years since more, maybe. Uh, That's why they're called specials. They're only supposed, they're supposed to be special and not that many of them. <laughs> you true. got another one in it's you. One, uh, there's no such thing as 19 specials. They can't be special. Then. <laughs> one is very special. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just, I, it never was my, the way that some comics love. I mean, again, I think maybe this is, again, is a lucky thing. I don't have the like, oh, I missed. I missed it with stand-up. I have regrets about what I want. Like, oh, I should want to do that more. I should want to be bigger in that world. But I but I don't, the way that I see people love performing, love the audience, love that exchange. I need to go out and give this. Like, I don't have that. I've never had it. And They're sociopaths. <laughs> They're not. <laughs> But we need sociopaths. It's true. I don't. <laughs> we need them to, you know, we need them for, for things that are not, you know, we don't want them, we don't need them to like, you know, eat people and say they didn't, but we need them to, yeah. yeah. No, I agree with Morgan. We need them to, we need the personalities who can turn it on when the lights are on and then when they're off, they're just empty vessels, yeah. you know, <laughs> you need a lot of those. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I I was reading you grew up uh, Irish and Jewish. Yeah, is this yeah. correct? Well, I was raised Jewish. My dad's side is like is like a huge Irish Catholic family, and my mom's side is like seven Jews. Yeah. <laughs> and so you said earlier that your mom is reigning, and my mom is reigning. So I get that. And and do you think for me certainly that kind of gave me like a a sarcastic cynicism that I think informs a little bit of how I write sometimes. Did, do you feel like your mom's reign has sort of watered your comedic garden a little bit? Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're having a therapy session. I now. love it. <laughs> that is your like a uh, masterclass watering your comedic garden with your mother's reign. <laughs> how to take a, you got uh, me there. Yeah. Make make their narcissism about you. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's yes. right. We're carrying it on. Yes. Um, it's uh yeah, there there's a lot of uh 
what from my childhood informed what I do. Um, I think that more than maybe the like cynicism, I think I like was a constant observer, mm-hmm. like just a cut. Con- like, I think I just kept looking around going like, what? <laughs> I think like even as a kid I was just like I don't think so like, <laughs> like <laughs> um and then I then growing up like yeah yeah I mean I summers I'd spend with my you know my aunt and uncle and then in my high school years I lived with like f- in five households so like I think I just a lot of sitting and watching and my mom was very is very she's very big her response everything's very yep. big and yep. I also think that 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 maybe, yeah, in, in response to that, I was a little more like there again, my I think my affect maybe a little bit triggered by not wanting to be that. Right. Yeah. But in general, I I I've I've thought about this, you know, more probably in the last few years, watching the a show, but it was my house, you know. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Oh my God, that's interesting. Well, when I when I posed that question to you, you had a physical reaction yeah, to it, so <laughs> I can tell that there's there's probably a lot to uh, talk about in that area. But we'll leave that to you, between you and your therapist. I think I was also just like repulsed by the watering the garden, <laughs> <laughs> physically repulsed. That's my goal as a questioner: is repulsion. <laughs> Um, now, I, I, first of all, let me let me issue an apology here. Uh, the the other two folks on this podcast know how diligently I study up for guests, but last week he I hits the in- Wikipedia so fucking hard. <laughs> I, had, I I had incorrectly uh, asserted that you had written on moms, which I of course was confusing uh, two broke girls. Okay, mm-hmm. so you were on two broke girls, and that was really one of the last network shows that performed you know that had sort of traditional like good ratings so that was a cbs show what was your experience like working on on that show uh did you have like a great time with the staff did it feel different because it was cbs versus say like a late night show or what you're doing now on abbott yeah i mean it was i i had a blast it was uh I've used this term before, but it, for me, it was like almost like a, it was like boot camp. It was like multi-cam boot camp because, yeah. uh, you know, Michael Patrick King, who ran the show, um, it was not, I think now people think of like writer's room, people watching YouTube videos or there's no videos, no phones, no, it was, it was, you know, do the work, do the work, get five minute breaks, check your phone. I think the product would lead people to believe like it was like a, a goofy, you know, silly vest all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was a really, really shockingly strong room. And I remember thinking like, oh, this room could kind of write anything, which was kind of a cool, cool acknowledgement. Michael, one thing he did do as well was when he started, he hired you kind of like everyone in the room had been broke to have like real stories. It wasn't somebody going like, what if, if you were broke and you like, it was like, so the stories were so funny because the stories that like, you know, and, and it would like, I had this job that I basically likened to like getting paid to wake someone up. And (laughs) and it was like, cause it was really the only thing I really had to do. And, uh, and like, like funny jobs, but they would, they would sort of delve into someone going, oh, and then this guy had a gun to my mom's head. You're just like, holy shit. <laughs> just being in a, it was like all real people. It was certainly not, um, 
even at the time, I think it was still pretty popular to have like Harvard heavy rooms and stuff. Yeah. And I think there was some intention um, in not not doing that. Um, so it was a good, weird kind of street smart room, even in the writing area, like a lot of raw right. young talent and then some folks who had been who had done a lot of cool stuff. Um, yeah. So- Were you ever shocked at the tone of that show? Because one of my main memories of tuning into that was, you know, you throw on CBS, which is. Yeah supposedly the family network and it's yeah. like it's ncis and it's a rape you know and you're kind of <laughs> like what and then you're watching like um two and a half men and they're like you having a jack-off contest and you're just like <laughs> how is this the family and i remember i turned on two broke girls and it, it was about anal somehow i'm sitting next <laughs> to my mom so on, on, <laughs> was there any ever any shock on your part on what you were getting away with under the auspices of of I it think being so. a family. Yeah, I don't I don't wouldn't say I wouldn't say shock. I think there was I mean, obviously, I mean we can have the whole conversation about what what age is well and was it even appropriate at the time. I mean, it wasn't like there'd be an episode about anal. That was it wasn't like a very special anal right. episode. <laughs> um, were, it is very were, special. Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it was fun. I mean, it was fun that Kat Denning's character was a little bit of I think there was a kind of comedy that was a little more cool at the time which was sort of you know edgy edgy and also like open about sex and sexuality and stuff in a way that I would be lying if I said it was like delicate but I think that what was fun was like trying to find the joke that worked for that harsh thing like what can you make it silly? Can you make it fun? And then also the, the live audience mm-hmm. was tremendous because you could try jokes. And if a big audience laughed, well, that was exciting. It's not like, I mean, we certainly didn't, you know, bus in like MIT fellows or something. Right. <laughs> uh, but that was fun. Um, I remember I had a joke that I couldn't, almost got a, a cunt joke on CBS. Oh, It ended up not doing it. So I took it for my standup. What is it? It was, I was in Europe and I bought a croissant in France. And I said, I'll have this croissant. And the lady said, it's a croissant. The T is silent. So I said, oh, well, then you're being a cun. (laughs) The joke was originally for the two girls on Two Broke Girls. And it was so, it was like, oh, could we get this? Is this a cunt joke that could go on TV? Yeah. And when they finally said no i it's one of the only jokes and it's not like it's a great joke it's the only jokes where i said michael can i can i is it's never gonna go can i just can i hack and is that is that that's mine again right <laughs> that was <laughs> nice of you to ask <laughs> well i mean i think there's stuff that i've said in a room and then i'm not on the show anymore and they i don't feel like i own that joke anymore right. well you do care, right? you do you own it that joke i felt like well that's since it just literally cannot go on right. cbs I've seen stuff I said in a room wind up in other people's stand-up. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Whoa. That's awful. Yeah, we, you know, that's frustrating, Morgan. We we, we obviously go through <clears throat> the same kind of stuff at Family Guy where you're, you know, you're, you're close to saying something that you really haven't been able to say for years and you found a weird loophole to get it in. Yeah. And then, as I'm sure you've realized over the years, standards, which is like, 
the the great Oz. It's all a myth. It's all like mm-hmm. kind of their whims and what they feel. There's no yeah. real set of regulations. They just they just kill that stuff before it goes in. We had something with Stu- we had something with Stewie recently where he was taunting another kid in the in the schoolyard, and he said like, uh, "What are your pronouns? I bet you're not a they them because you ain't she it." <laughs> and and like so we and it was in for a while and then I they're know, like yeah. no you can't say that we're like we're not saying shit we're saying she it fits in this joke so that's always very frustrating but I'm glad you kept yeah. it and it got laughs for you the best doing a multi-cam is that the standards lady had to run out every time it happened like you couldn't deal with something in post so there were times where you'd see you know like the actual physical choreography if you're sitting in the chair and people know when you watch a multicam if the writer's area is like kind of a lineup of chairs and if you were in the back you could literally see like you knew what was happening that even if you couldn't hear it someone whispered a joke to somebody they said we can't the other person was like come on the other person was like it is really good Someone goes, okay, let's try it. You don't really know what's happening, but you know, you know it's going on. And you hear a joke said, a new joke on uh, on set, and then you see this woman run out. <laughs> like physically have to run out. That's the best. I mean, it was, but again, that's where you get that for me, writers' rooms. And I definitely had to like adjust and mature into like changes, but like being like a little goofball kid basically yeah yeah get on this is like there's nothing more joyful to me than like giggling around jokes yeah and um so that was fun that was that feeling of like oh we're gonna get away with this and an adult like literally it's it's 40 people in their 40s going oh an adult's gonna come out and we're gonna get in trouble (laughs) yeah that is the best that is and the chaos around it is always so fun too just picturing people going frantic about this kind of stuff um i have just a couple more questions and then we'll uh let you go but um you've worked now a couple of times with one of our previous guest steve levitan who's like you know a god in the comedy writing community um did you have good experiences with him do you learn from him is there do you take extra note around people like that like okay i'm gonna listen to how steve wants to put this together yeah i mean modern family was for many reasons was fascinating i came in late i came in for the just for the last season it was him and chris lloyd Right. They did separate episodes, didn't really work together. Although in that last season, they did more than they had before I got there. Right. So my experience with Steve and Chris together, and then my experience with Steve on Reboot, just apart, you know, Mm -hmm. apart from that, was even different. So I wouldn't even say that, oh, there's a specific thing that Steve does particularly but it, it it's more about like anytime I'm in a room with, with somebody I think he was always by the way he was always like almost seemed like shyly like I I love just shoot me when I was yeah. young I was like just shoot me to me is like that's I am tuning in I'm having fun there's jokes and it is perfectly cast so so I came in like a big fan even with Chris I was like I did the Frasier I was just like oh this is I am always somebody who is in awe of experience if it's stuff that I was like, oh, I love that. So like Modern Family was a very good lesson for me. And I don't think I gave it back 
in, I, I don't, I wish I had been kind of better at that, but I think I was admittedly learning on the job, on a job that I personally would have liked to have been like already really great at coming in, you know, Um, season 11, but it was just a different approach to telling story and mapping out story that for me was not as organic. And so taking from that room, I mean, no, no, I, I just felt, I felt very lucky to like sit there and kind of feel bad for a minute. Like, Oh, I'm not there yet. I'm not on this page that they have been on for 10 years. Right. But it was a lot more thoughtful. It was a lot more of like sitting in silence, sitting in kind of throwing a lot away and 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 figuring out kind of perfect ways to lay in misunderstandings, which seem, again, that gets into the math of comedy and then it makes it unfunny. But it wasn't in that way. It was like a very, it was the smartest approach to that kind of comedy that I've been around and I think it took me a while to walk into that room and find my place in that machine you know right right that's understandable and clearly uh their approach whatever it was was working very well so yeah Yeah. we totally get that we've talked to a few uh, writers who have come in on shows that are already big hits and how that's kind of a different experience because you are uh getting used to something that's kind of a going concern now I wanted to to wrap up with kind of a uh, maybe a slightly more serious question at the end. I, now, obviously, we all know there's a there's a problem in Hollywood when it comes to female representation on every level. But just to to break it down to the to the writers' level, um, somehow you've avoided that. I mean, I can't speak to all your experiences. Perhaps there are some negative ones in there. But you've been working pretty consistently uh, your whole career on really great shows. So what what does it feel like for you on the inside of uh, such a hot button issue, but you you seem to have um, experienced success within this system? I mean, it's, um, it's so funny, because it it feels like 20 years of being asked, um, what does it feel like to be a lady? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I don't know anything but my experience. I I think I've, um, but I've always especially early on, was very aware. I think the language even used 20 years ago was like, they it was in the beginnings of the talks of like, this is not good. Things need right. to look different. Um, even the language at the time was, this show needs a woman. Or, right. hey, you might be able to get on that. I think they need to hire a woman. Right. Um, which also, I mean, again, the if there's anything like kind of uglier than the language used around like having no diversity, it's like the beginning of it's like, (laughs) like, it's like, Oh, that doesn't sound remotely like I should be there or want to be there. Um, What I think helped me was, well, one being young, I don't think that if I was in my forties, 20 years ago that I would have gotten those opportunities. That's what I start to think about. Like when I talk to women, like, Someone like Meryl Marco, who's a friend who I adore, who is is like a legend, um, yeah. in my opinion. Um is, yeah, absolutely. Nothing, there's like, I, I just imagine like, oh, it was worse. It was worse. And uh, and you were certainly had to had to put up with a lot more. For me, I think that where the waters get kind of muddied is like when you only allow, like in that token period where it's like we need a woman. 
what ends up happening is that like women are mad at you. Right. Oh, wow. And that's interesting. Period where I could certainly tell there was resentment and even from a couple friends and it wasn't, and we, I've had conversations with friends where it was like, why do you get the one spot? Not why is there one spot? Right. And so that's like wow. what you do. You pit people against each other mm -hmm. um, wow. in that kind of very, you know, kind of messy pursuit of diversity as opposed to like acknowledging this whole thing needs to look different. We got to like root it out. Right. Um, those early steps were really weird and clunky. Uh, if, for me, I think I, I benefited from like, I'm so in my own head. I so live in my own head and words and thoughts and sounds and jokes and comedy that I was much less aware of the systems and the, all the way all that worked. I, I really was like protected by my weirdness. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't think I wouldn't have called it weird. I, I'm learning a lot now about, right. <laughs> about the, how weird I am. But, but, uh, but yeah, and then also being, not being like a traditional, if you're talking about gender norms and a binary, not being like a traditional lady. Yeah. And then, you know, oh, I need a woman's voice in this room. I'm like, oh, not me. Like, I'm like, oh boy. That's like, you know, if that's, if that's your agenda, uh, just a woman's voice, I, I know what kind of woman you're talking about just by that being you know the requirement if a woman's voice is a requirement and that's the only way you know how to say it that i am not the lady oh. that you want so that's well, kind of why i get like i like all the exploration and the fluidity and stuff because we're not nobody's one thing you know yeah. yes well that's i mean that's very well said and it, yeah. it sounds like all the rooms that you've worked in you know quickly figured out uh, that you were more than just a woman's voice and something that Goldie and I figured out when we saw you perform stand-up, which is that you are a unique voice that is, you know, very funny. So, and I think that uh, now that Goldie and I have uh, made our money, we welcome these changes oh in writers' rooms. <laughs> we want it all to be better, right? Now For the second time today, I'm going to distance myself <laughs> from your entire attitude, line of questioning, exploration. Uh, I've already. Say, I'm from the beginning. I, I got to say, it was. I, I questioned. I, uh, from, I benefited from like ignorance. And I know, I mean, I met Goldie, I was 18, 19 years old. I was just like stand up, jokes, comedy, yeah. writing. And I benefited from being told early on at the start of, I think I want to do this. Like, it's never going to happen. There's no money. There was no expectation that anything was going to work out. So yes, I got lucky. I got lucky very fast, but none of it, I hadn't like manifested that. It was just right. keep doing what your brain wants you to do. That's and great. now, you know. That's awesome. Well, I mean, you were lucky and I think that, you know, entertainment is lucky to have you as well. Yeah. So uh, thank you for blessing us with your comedic rain. Nice. Your garden yeah. is beautiful. <laughs> um, Morgan Murphy, thank you so thank much you so for much. being here today, Ooh. for taking the time. We loved talking to you. Yeah. Thanks. Bye, guys. Good to see you. Oh, my God. Morgan was so great. Just so heartfelt, wonderful, great yeah. talking to her. Uh, now let's get into a part of the show we like to call Top 5. Top 5. 
Well, these are top five birds, or as I call them, birds. Birds. <laughs> nice, nice. And here we go. Here are mine. Number five, the red cardinal. Ooh, uh, good call. Very nice. Boy. When you see one in a New England winter, you're looking out the window into the snow, and there's mm. a fleck of red. Beautiful. Look at that boyd. Look Gorgeous. at that boyd. <laughs> Likewise, number four, the blue jay. Yes. Yes. Cuts Love through it. the noise. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, hummingbird. Ooh, oh, nice. Yes. The marvel yes. of nature, the beauty, and a great Wilco song. Ooh. Number two, it's a little bit of a deep cut. Ooh. The green arasari. Ooh, it's a toucan like bird with the loyalty of a dog. <gasps> really? Oh. I've looked into having one as a pet. Wow. I don't have enough space. Right. <laughs> Two can yeah. play at that game. Oh. And number one, you can't beat it, the parrot. Ooh. Oh, I, Wait, that's that's no, no bald eagle for Goldie? Oh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just shocked. <laughs> no, for America. For America. Yeah. Great mummy joke, asshole. <laughs> You should have given the, the, the toucan's beak joke for me is out there for you. <laughs> Go ahead, JC. Okay. Um, my number five is I actually, I may have talked about this before, but I studied this bird in Oregon, on the coast of Oregon, called the marbled merlet. I don't know if I've ever oh, yeah. discussed that. Oh, this. Have I ever talked about it? The marbled merlet. You talked about it, I remember. I did. Okay. Yeah. So it was my number five because it's, you know, it's a special place in my heart. Um, number four is the peregrine falcon. Also spoke about this bird. Very yes. intense, strong. Don't fuck with the peregrine falcon. Yeah. Very adaptable. I would hate dare. to be a scurrying rodent <laughs> yeah. when the peregrine falcon's so, around. Yeah, or even another bird for that matter. They're Ooh. vicious, yes. So, number three is our crossover, the uh, African green parrot. Mm-hmm. There is, um, in San Francisco, when I lived there, there was a, there's a flock of like 300 of them that they were pets and met up or and bred, and now they fly around in huge flocks from building to building throughout the day. It's, they're amazing. amazing. Did, did you hear, ever heard, and I've seen them in Pasadena, that there's flocks of parrots, and people say they, they actually were freed during the L.A. riots. <gasps> yeah. I don't know I if he- that's true. That feels heard, urban legend. Yes, I, I heard it. that that's a myth, but I loved that. and I, I love po- the story. I, I, yeah. I parroted that oh. story whenever I had the chance because that's such a cool story. Yeah, I love that. Um, my number two is the brown pelican. Looks like a dinosaur. I mean, yeah. swoop. They're swoop. incredible, beautiful. The way they glide over the ocean when they're flying by. And my number one, bald eagle. Yeah, <laughs> I represent. They're amazing. They're let's talk about prehistoric. Yeah. Right, anyway, they're cool. Great yeah. list. Okay. Um, my list. I have a couple of cheats on here. All right, number five. Uh, they don't get the respect they deserve. Pigeons. They're an they're an Oiben <laughs> bird. Okay. They figured it out that cities are where it's at, and I respect them for that. And I, I we had a whole Family Guy bit. I don't know if you remember Goldie, if that was when you were there or not, about like a, a pigeon that was running an advertising company. And, like a and I don't pigeon? really watch the show. <laughs> That's a good answer. I, I don't know. I, I don't remember. But it was I. I believe it was a Danny Smith joke where he's just like. The pigeon is, you know, sort of exhorting the room and saying, guys, 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 listen, listen. I've heard all the ideas. We're going with dropped museum 
popcorn, <laughs> which I always, <laughs> I always just thought that was so funny. Uh, anyway, okay, so number four for me is the uh, the blade of paradise. Oh, yes. When you see those nature shows and the way they turn themselves into a little weird reflecting yeah. like rearview mirror to, yeah. to uh, attract their mate, I think that's very yeah. cool. That's a good one. Uh, number three, you guys both touched on it. I wasn't as technical as you. I just wrote talking parrots. <laughs> like, yes, it's, they're amazing. It's absolutely incredible <laughs> that they can talk. Like we don't talk yeah. about that enough. It's incredible. How insane it is that these birds can talk just like we do, which is crazy. <laughs> Uh, and here's where I started cheating. Number two, the middle finger. Flipping the blade. It's a great one. Great one. Uh, and of course, Goldie, number one, Larry. Larry Bird uh, is the greatest bird there ever was. Oh, wow. That was I'll fight to the death anyone who says otherwise. Um, all right. So I, it's my top five uh, next week. Uh, I thought of a, what I think is kind of an interesting uh, list other than your relatives top five people you would bring back from the dead oh i like it yes great let's do it let's talk about that next week and right now let's end our show on a high note wow beautiful i'll go go yeah go ahead jc Michael Lombardi. I couldn't do it last week, but I re-listened to the episode, obviously, because I edited it. But his words of wisdom really hit home. And Jonathan Gabay even tweeted this thing that really stuck with me, which was, the world gets out of the way for people who know where they want to go. It sort of set Great me quote. into a little depression, but <laughs> but I as the, I as the world was in your way. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I was just like, oh yeah, okay. Well, I need to figure out where I want to go at all times, you know. He so. was he was awesome. He was awesome, and he and by the way, started following me on Instagram. So Goldie, he's yeah. officially now our friend. Yeah. Well, me when too. we show up to a me dinner too. party at his house, <laughs> uh, you can be I'll shocked. Act shocked, you're there. <laughs> Please do. Um, my uh, my high note this week is kind of a just a little fun thing that I took a lot of pleasure from uh, on our old standby uh, Paramount Plus. Mm-hmm. There is a soft rock documentary called Sometimes When We Touch. Obviously, based on that. When we touch. (laughs) So they and they talked to the guy who wrote and sang that, and they were it was they had a very funny attitude towards him, where he basically said in the moment, people were like, "Dude, chill, (laughs) you're you're way, you're way too serious." But uh, it's awesome because I love soft rock. It's like exactly my vibe as a kind of do nothing person, but. (laughs) It charts, it's a three-parter. It charts the rise of soft rock in the 70s. It's fall off a cliff in the 80s. And then how it's brought back, oddly enough, by hip-hop artists of the 90s who would sample from a lot of the songs. And then it turned into Yacht Rock Review and everybody kind of loves it again. So it's it's a really fun documentary. Oh, cool. Um, That's great. I will check it out. Yeah. My high note is not gonna you know ring a bell with anyone but i've been sick this week and i gotta say we're living in the golden age of supplements i love snake oils and (laughs) just i've been blasting this thing with like every snake oil i can get my hands on i think it's working just tons of zinc vitamin d airborne oh yeah and it's it's just been an excuse 
What about to, acilococinum? You know the oh, pellets. No. That's What's that? they're those little pellets you put under your tongue that to you know talk about snake oil. That's supposed to help with uh, symptoms of like flu-like symptoms. Oh. So the second you take you get them, you pop a bunch. It'll tell you the dosage. I do that with like zinc. Anyway, yeah. it's yeah. but it seems to have worked because I I've really not been debilitated even though I've been sick. So awesome. that was nice. Awesome. Glad to hear awesome. It. Well, for Christ's sake, take today off if you're feeling ragged. Mm. You know. You know, you you always have that power. power. Um, anyway, it was great talking with Morgan Murphy today. Yeah, she's great. It's always great talking to you two, and mm. we will talk to all of you listeners again next week. Don't put that in your calendar. That was fun. Now give me some candy.